invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then he brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had, been, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I have seen a lot of bad bosses in my time. Managerial vampires who live off the souls of the people with whom they work. I've had some of those people for bosses. And occasionally I catch myself tempted to act like a bad boss. You know what I'm talking about, right? Somehow, as a culture, we've mass-produced bad bosses. But uh, here's the problem. We haven't been systematic about, enough about it. If we're going to pump out bureaucratic nightmares, we need to be more intentional about it. So I thought I'd share a few secrets with you, ones I've learned over the years, which are guaranteed to make you the object of scorn among all those with whom you work. Trust me on this. You follow these simple rules, and soon you won't have to worry about all that pathetic employee morale stuff. <laughs> you can kill it in a heartbeat. And you should, because this is what bosses do. One, always assume that the people you work with are trying to get away with something. Now, see, this is key to the whole thing. If you want to be a certified soul killer, you got to question everything people do as if you're sure everybody's out to cheat you. You just haven't figured out how yet. But you will. Oh, man, you will. Trust no one. Two, 
Remind them every chance you get just how lucky they are to have a job. Believe me, they'll forget if you don't regularly bring it to their attention. Three, be vague about your expectations. People get complacent when they know exactly what's required of them. It's just too comfortable. They need the challenge of trying to read your mind, your expressions, your body language. Keep them on their toes. Four, let them know that their family life should always take a back seat to the job. Oh, so you have a family, do you? Bet they like to eat, don't they? It'd be a terrible shame if all that precious food and shelter you provide should suddenly disappear. <laughs> I think we understand one another. So finish the Peterson report before you go home tonight. Five, repeatedly tell people how to do their jobs. Clearly, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing or how they need. They want you to tell them in detail. You're smarter than they are. I mean, you're the boss after all. So don't be stingy with your wisdom. Let it flow. Five, take credit for everybody else's ideas. See, I mean, people get a paycheck. They shouldn't expect recognition, too. If they want the glory, well, they should be the boss. Seven, never accept responsibility for your own mistakes. You're the boss, which means you're the smartest. So, by definition, any mistakes that occur must be caused by someone else. Make sure that someone else is always standing close by, ready to receive the blame. Number eight, try to make all decisions by yourself. People don't want all that needless responsibility. Most folks are like cattle who only want to be told what to do by thoughtful people like you. Don't complicate their lives unnecessarily by burdening them with authority. Nine, when you do find yourself in a situation where you have to give people the authority to make decisions, always, I can't stress this enough, always come behind and change, dismiss, criticize those decisions. Don't let anybody get comfortable making decisions without obsessing first over how you're going to take it. You're the boss, right? I mean, the people who work with you should always worry about what you want. Number 10, be, be condescending. Everyone wishes their job was more like high school. And you, you are in a unique position to help them recall the wonders of adolescence. 11, be passive aggressive. The world doesn't have nearly enough signs posted by anonymous fatheads looking to make a ridiculous point about yogurt consumption in the break room refrigerator. You can be that person. People secretly want to be manipulated by worthless know-it-alls who can't quite work up the courage to say publicly what's on their mind. And then 12, always, always pay people as little as possible. See, this is obvious enough that it shouldn't require any explanation. You're trying to make a profit, not line the pockets of the undeserving. People just waste money anyway. You're helping them learn to be more frugal. 
which you should feel good about. And don't let anybody tell you any different. See, this is easy. Easy, easy peasy. So simple are these rules, in fact, that just about anyone can ruin people's lives and kill the souls of the people with whom they work. You don't believe any, you don't believe me? Just ask somebody who calls you boss. Aha. Now, get in there and crush somebody's spirit. Did you ever have a terrible boss? I know. It's the worst. But they're out there, aren't they? Power-hungry people who are convinced that everyone needs an extraordinary level of supervision, lest they start getting ideas in their heads that you don't want them to have. Well, I would take our story for this morning, Palm Sunday. Triumphal entry, final week of Jesus' life. Jesus enters Jerusalem to the cries of desperate people who are convinced that he possesses the kind of power necessary to stand up to Caesar, who is himself a power-hungry boss who's convinced that everyone needs an extraordinary level of supervision, lest they start getting in ideas in their heads that, you know, Rome doesn't want them to have. It's, it's a story that we rehearse every year as we begin Holy Week, every single year. And I, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you, after preaching the same story for over 30 years now, it, it, it gets a little thread-worn. Jesus, donkey, palm branches, Hosanna. I mean, let's just say the benediction and go home. But there's a part of this story that seldom gets told. See, now I've got your attention, don't I? What rabbit is he going to pull out of his hat this time? But there's no tricks. There's no secret manuscript. I'm not trying to sell you anything. See, the story that gets left out of our interpretation of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem during the Passover feast in the Gospel of Luke is the story that comes right before this one. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the first verse in our Gospel lesson today. It says, after he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And you say, mm, okay, so... Well, the obvious question is, after he said what? Right? See, Luke intentionally ties this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem with the story that comes right before it. If you look at your pew Bible, You look at your pew Bible, you see that Jesus tells the parable of the ten pounds just prior to our passage this morning. It's in Luke chapter 19. Now Luke sets the stage for this parable and ultimately for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in this way. He writes, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because he supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, you might remember this one. A nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. 
That's kind of an understated way of saying that the nobleman went to a foreign land looking for support in his bid to become king. Now, in anticipation of this trip, he called ten of his servants and gave them one mina apiece, which is about three months' wage. And the NRSV translates that pound. He told them to, quote, do business with these until he returned. Take the money, do something with it, make a profit, give it back. Then the story says something interesting that we rarely, I think, pick up on. As accustomed as we are to thinking about this parable as the parable of the talents, right? This is a a little bit different framing of it. Luke says, but the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, a one percenter looking for power has his constituents, who the text says hate him, and send a delegation to tell someone, we're not quite sure who, that under no circumstances do they want this guy to be their king. So, just to be clear, the nobleman who goes looking for power is the bad guy in Luke's telling of this story. He's power hungry. He treats the people under him badly enough that they all hate him. And when he returns home, he wants all the loot his servants have made given back to him. But unfortunately for one guy, he didn't make any money. He just didn't lose the money he'd been given. Kept it wrapped up in a cloth. Now, why did the servant wrap the money up in a cloth for safekeeping? Because the nobleman is a jerk, Luke says. Always taking what doesn't belong to him. He's an entitled man baby. Now, the nobleman, as you can imagine, he doesn't particularly like that answer. So he takes the money from the one servant and he gives it to another and he says, I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that that sounds exactly like the ruling philosophy of some of our contemporary politicians at this point. But the story closes with the nobleman revealing his true feelings about power. He, Luke tells us, but as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Now, I I don't know about you, but given how some of our leaders have acted over the past few years, that sounds way too close to home for my comfort level. A ruler hated by his own people returns home, not to a joyous welcome, but to the resentful stares and mumblings of the tyrannized. And this absence of loyalty and devotion makes the king furious enough to start killing the opposition. And the way Luke tells it, this parable is a thinly veiled jab at the way Caesar and his flunkies rule. Selfish, Vindictive, but it also sets up an excellent contrast with another would be ruler gone to a distant country to stake his own claim to leadership. 
The parable is a perfect way to set up the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Another ruler with a claim to power. His dramatic entrance to the city in a low-rent parade would have rung bells in the heads of Luke's readers. Why? Well, Jesus' procession was a parody of a Roman emperor's triumphant return home after a political military victory. It's a big parade. But unlike the nobleman in the parable or Caesar in real life, whose subjects hated them, when Jesus comes to town, he's greeted with the red carpet treatment, joyous shouts of Hosanna. See, it's, this is a tale of power. Who has it? And how will the king treat the people he's responsible for when he finally gets it? Let's not kid ourselves. When Jesus entered Jerusalem during Passover in a parade, Rome was watching very carefully. See, the Roman Empire, because it was so far flung, always had to be on the lookout for possible rebellions. They had a finely tuned threat detection system that was always hyper-vigilant about sniffing out potential insurgent movements and then dealing with them severely. You don't want people getting any ideas. Because they were stretched so thin, the Romans couldn't afford to let even the most minor infractions go unanswered. Now, the Passover feast was a particularly problematic Jewish observance that always kept the Romans up at night. And for one thing, just in general, Rome was always extremely sensitive to crowds gathering. They believed, and I suspect with, had some experience with, crowds turning violent. So anytime a crowd gathered, they were on high alert. And for another thing, Passover celebrated God's deliverance of an oppressed people from the hands of a tyrant. A storyline a bit too close for imperial comfort. So Passover meant Caesar and his minions were extra vigilant. It was the one Jewish feast that always gave the Romans heartburn. Consequently, when Jesus rode in Jerusalem in a dime store parody of an imperial Roman military parade, the folks in charge gathered in the situation room to decide how they're going to respond to this because they and the crowd gathered understood that in entering Jerusalem in this way, Jesus was planting a political flag. I mean, every, everybody knew this was about power. The question was, what kind of power would Jesus seek? Would it be Caesar's kind of power? One imposed on the weak from the top down? Would it be the kind of power exercised by the king in the parable, who was hated by everyone and who sought to slaughter all those who opposed him? See, that's the kind of power grab everybody expected. The riled up masses believed that Jesus had finally come to pit his power against Caesar in a violent confrontation. And in a certain sense, they were right. 
Jesus did come to pit his power against Caesar's, but the problem was he conceived of power in precisely the opposite way. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, for Caesar and for the king in the parable, power is something that you wield against the have-nots. And they should just be grateful that you pay any attention to them at all. Why? Why do the, why do the powerful seek out the weak? Because the weak can't fight back. The powerful often use their strength for their own aggrandizement. They take, they crush, they divide, they oppress, they hoard, they cling to whatever control will help them stay in power. I mean, everybody knows this and is appropriately terrified by it. But Jesus has a record of using power too. In Luke's gospel, Jesus uses dunamis to cast out demons and heal people. Dunamis, power. We get the word dynamite. As Emerson Powery points out, generally the dunamis of Jesus was to make things right in the world, to return broken bodies to physical wholeness. Even if these activities were representative and symbolic, and return disturbed minds to emotional wholeness. What these disciples witnessed defined a king who attempted to rule, restore the lives of people after violence was already brought into their world. That was how Jesus used power. In other words, unlike the kinds of rulers people are used to, who, who, who always seem to be using their power for themselves, Jesus' use of power is always focused on the most exposed and the most exploited. See, Jesus' use of power builds up instead of dividing and tearing down, heals people rather than afflict them, sets them free instead of subjugating them. See, it's all about power. So the question is, will we use whatever we pow power we have for ourselves, or will we use it for others? See, you, you, you can crush people's souls or you can bind them up. That's the question that's put to us every single day. Will we use the power we have for others and not just for ourselves? And the story of our lives is how we answer it. Amen. Oh,